it'll take us a few months um but i haven't done anything like this with y'all in sunday school in a while so um colossians it is and uh, colossians 1 is especially relevant around times uh, like christmas because it deals with the incarnation uh, the two natures of christ and and all that i want to give you a brief review especially since it's been two weeks because um, two weeks ago, we started with our first lesson in chapter 1, kind of gave a backdrop of Paul's um, apostleship, how it had come to him by the will of the Father. You see that in chapter 1, verse 1 of Colossians, and that was important because Paul, like the other apostles, was um, chosen by God and sanctified through Jesus Christ. He was an apostle of Jesus Christ like the others who had come before him, even though he did not walk with Jesus during his earthly ministry, like the others. And he writes this letter with Timothy. You see that as well in verse 1, that Paul, an apostle, and Timothy, right? So he writes to the saints and the faithful brethren. He doesn't just call them saints. He's not talking about two different groups of people, as we said, but he's calling them saints or holy ones, set-apart ones, and faithful ones, right? Recognizing, as we get into in just a moment, uh, the fact that they are living righteous lives. They are living faithful lives, and he praises them for it. And he opens with thanksgiving and with prayer. You see in verse 3, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And we saw last time, how often Paul mentions prayer in this chapter. And you see that handout that I gave you, um, those blank numbers, one through six. That's going to be a little uh, exercise that we do to look at the six things that Paul prays for. But what I want us to do is kind of put them in our own words so that we can more readily utilize them in our own prayers. Uh, He commends uh, prayer uh, by this practice. and he does so. He, he thanks God for, uh, and this is kind of related to a question that, that Mr. Lee brought up. He mentions what is often called the three chief virtues, faith, hope, and love. But you'll notice that he says in verse 4, he says faith. In the verse 4, he says love. In the beginning of verse 5, he says hope. So he doesn't say it in the normal order. Right? We say faith, hope, and love. We know those things. right? Um, maybe the most well-known place that that comes up is 1 Corinthians 13. Right? Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Right? Um, some will, again, describe these as the chief virtues. But what I think Paul does, and this is kind of an attempt to further answer the question that Mr. Lee had. Um, I think he changes the order here in Colossians for his own purposes to make a point. And I gave you a few quotes. Uh, The first one right there, I'm going to read it now. He says, he places this faith in the foreground. That means he puts faith first and puts it before other spiritual gifts because it is in its nature prior to the rest. For it, faith, is the foundation and root of godliness and religion. It is... The gate of life through which God first enters into the human mind, that is, enters savingly, and it is the basis of the spiritual building, right? The building that takes place in us where we're made to become the place of God's Spirit. Now, if this is correct, then the reason that Paul lists love second rather than third is not so much to draw an accent on love or hope but actually to draw a different accent on faith because he's showing that the love that the saints have, that the hope that they have, springs from faith because faith is the foundation of everything. Or as that quote says, it is in its nature prior to the rest. We cannot have uh, love of the saints. We cannot have the hope that Paul mentions, the hope that is laid up for them in heaven if we do not have faith, right? And he's drawing attention (coughs) to that. And you know, Paul uh, does this often. He is, um, by some stripes, the uh, 
apostle of faith. He emphasizes grace and faith tremendously. Uh, one of the most well-known verses is Ephesians 2.8, where we get this truth that faith comes first. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And even there in Paul's listing, grace precedes faith. It is because God is gracious to us that he then creates or gives faith into our hearts. And out of that faith springs love and hope. Now, we talked a bit last time on how Paul directs their attention. You see there in verse 5, he says, For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. It's important to remember this fact that their hope, uh, the location, as it were, of their hope, the hope for Christians, it is laid up in heaven. It is not just the case for the Christians of the first century. It is the case for Christians in all ages. The ultimate, though not the only hope, is laid up for us in heaven. Right. So the reason that's important is because um, we can grow weary uh, in the world in which we live. Right. We see all these promises in the gospel of, uh, or, or in the scriptures in general, of the gospel going to the nations. Right. And sometimes, and an earth that has been impacted by the gospel is, can become our hope more than the hope that waits for us in heaven. Right? Now, you know, most of us have been in Calvinistic churches for a long time, and you're familiar with things like post-millennialism, right, where we have this hope that God will transform the nations. I, I believe that. I believe that God's going to Christianize the earth in some way before the return of the Lord Jesus but that's not my hope, right? That is a hope. It is a confidence that I have based on the word of God. But the hope of Christians, or as Paul says in another place, Titus 2.13, he speaks of looking for that blessed hope, right? So maybe you could call all other hopes just hopes, and then we have one blessed hope. He says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Here, Paul roots the blessed hope of Christians in the second coming of Christ. Jesus is the hope which is laid up for us in heaven. Right? He's not talking about something other than Christ. It's the Lord Jesus himself who is laid up for us in heaven. And Paul says in uh, verse 5 that they had learned this message through preaching. He says, whereof you heard before in the word of of the truth of the gospel. So they had heard of this hope. They had heard of, of Christ through the preaching of the gospel. Who was that? Remember, we looked a little bit at Epaphras. Uh, verse 7, he says, As you learned of Epaphras, they had learned of this hope. They had learned of salvation. And it's, uh, you know, the kindness of God that a man like Epaphras has his name recorded for all Christians ever to read, we can know who God used to bring the gospel to the Christians in Colossae. His name is Epaphras. He's mentioned later in the book. We got into that a little bit last week too. But Paul, he, he heaps praise upon Epaphras. Look at verse 7. Again, as you learned from or of Epaphras, he says he's our dear fellow servant who is for you, Right? That's another praise. A faithful minister of Christ. Then verse 8, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. So there's three or four dependent on how you count. Paul is telling them that this man, Epaphras, is a faithful servant. This man, Epaphras, is a faithful minister. He's a dear friend of ours. He has declared to us your love. He's told us about the love that you have in you by the Spirit, and He is for you. Now, why was this important? And again, remember that the church in Colossae was dealing with false teachers, right? Now, false teachers would not say that about Epaphras, right? Because they're trying to lead them to another message. They're trying to lead them into what we might call a different hope. One reason uh, for this could be, and this is your second quote there, um, 
I think this is uh, Matthew Poole. He, he kind of speaks to this idea. He says, Paul doth here very opportunely commend Epaphras in opposition to those false teachers who likely might insinuate somewhat to his disparagement. Right? So it's not a coincidence uh, that Paul is heaping praise upon Epaphras that would have served to encourage the saints to remember what they had um, learned from him. Uh, maybe you're wondering what the false teachings were. Look at chapter 2 of Colossians, uh, verse 6. We can start there. Uh, Paul uses this phrase uh, several times, uh, this idea of continuing in what they had already heard, right? Because false teachers come and they tell you, like, that's nice that you learned those things, but this is really what you need to know, right? And that was what they were dealing with in Colossae. Verse 6 says, as you have therefore received, meaning this has already been told you, as you've already received Christ Jesus the Lord, as you learn from men like Epaphras, so walk in him, walk in Christ, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as you've been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. And here's where he kind of gets into the false teaching stuff. Verse 8 Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments or elements of the world, the elementary principles of the world, and not after Christ. For in him, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And what Paul is doing is saying that in Christ... All the fullness you could ever desire is found. And then he says in verse 10, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principalities and powers. Like, so Christ is complete in himself. He has this fullness. But we as Christians in him, we are complete. We don't need additional teaching, as it were, because we're complete in the one who has all the fullness of the Godhead dwelling bodily. And he, by the way, is the head of all these principalities and powers. And Paul goes on to talk about how Christ has triumphed over these things. He does it in chapter 1, and he mentions it throughout Colossians. But that's what most people believe the error was going on in uh, Colossae was related to this um, base. One way you could summarize it is like the worship or intercession of angels, right? That they were seeking this special knowledge, not that Jesus could give, but that these other spiritual beings could give. That there were these new mediators that could give you this knowledge that Christ hadn't given you, that Epaphras hadn't given you. And that's why he's rooting all this sufficiency in Christ, like... Even if those things are in some way true, Paul is saying, like even if those beings do exist, Christ is head over all of them. Right? You can't use them to try to one-up or usurp Christ. Christ has triumphed over them as well. Uh, so that's kind of addressing the false teaching. And it is because of what Epaphras says that Paul speaks again. You can flip back to chapter 1 if you have to turn the page and look at verse 9. It is because of what Epaphras says to, to him. Remember, he says that they love the saints and their love in the Spirit, all that, verse 8. And he says, for this cause, verse 9, or because of this, we also, since the day we heard it, and then he's going to talk more about prayer, we do not cease to pray for you and to desire. So here's where your list comes from. All right, so we're going to look at six things that Paul desires right so read it i mean just look at verse 9 again for this reason so because of what epaphras says since we've heard of it it has caused us to not stop praying for you and to desire that you might be all right and then the prayer list as it were begins or the topical uh address of the things of prayer now I'm going to write uh, these on the board in a moment once we get to summarizing them. But you can just kind of keep your finger on your Bible and work through uh, the next few verses and see them there. The first thing that he desires for them is that they might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom 
and spiritual understanding. All right, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that this would lead to, so I'm looking at the King James, and the verse 10 begins with that, right? So he's praying into verse 9 that they would have this knowledge and spiritual understanding so that, second thing, they might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, right, in the most pleasing way. Third thing, being fruitful in every good work. Fourth thing, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Notice that's different than number one, right? He wants us to be filled with the knowledge of his will in the first point. But here, increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, those aren't ultimately two totally distinct things, but Paul separates them here. Right? So thinking about God's will, but also knowing God himself. And then um, the fifth one in verse 11, strengthened with all might according to God's glorious power. So strength and power right there, out of God's power, that the saints would be strengthened. And then the sixth thing, so that it would lead to all patience and long-suffering with joy or joyfulness. Now, what I want you to do before we start making this list is to think of your own prayer list. Right? Not just the people you pray for, but how you pray for them. Does it look anything like these six things that Paul has listed? It should. Right? Maybe you could number these six things in your own Bible, use them as a way to pray for your fellow Christians, especially as you pray for your own church, right? And it's a convincing meditation to step into. It also makes you wonder and, and consider how you think of your fellow believers, right? Gossip is a, a tremendous temptation for so many, right? What thoughts cross your mind when they pop into your head? Are they these six things that Paul mentions? How do you pray for them? Because you're supposed to. Now, this is certainly a model, and it'll keep you from many issues if this is your practice and concerns about the church and people's lives that for some reason we get tempted and drawn into focusing on about other people's lives. If we would instead focus on the things that Paul focuses on seeing in the lives of other Christians, it would radically transform things. It really would. Our own interactions and then our own prayer lives. So let's, let's look at these six things, right? Um, and what I want to do is just kind of put it in simpler words what six things Paul is, um, Paul is praying for. All right, so the first one. You're going to have to participate here. Being filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now, what is he praying for there? He's not praying for the knowledge of God. He gets to that at number four. So that's, that's not yet. You can't say that one. Anybody have an idea? Faithfulness, yeah. You have to study God's word and know it will. Right, right, okay. <laughs> I think the because of the way Paul connects it to number two, so that it will lead to walking worthy of the Lord and to all pleasing. All right. Let's look at these words. Number one, being filled with the knowledge of God's will. So knowing what God wants you to do is what he's asking for here. Praying for the church to be filled with knowing what God wants them to do in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. All right, so this first thing could be knowing what to do. Right, I want it to be that simple because then prayer becomes much more achievable. Right? So we're praying that people would know what to do. Right. So that, number two, it will lead to walking worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. Theological word here, sanctification. Because if you know 
what you are to do, then the next thing is praying that you would do it. Right? So that's the second thing. The third thing, being fruitful in every good work. Right? So, um, we could just say produce fruit, right? Because in sanctification, you're producing fruit, right? So, just think about these three for just a moment. Right? So, when you pray for your fellow believers, one of the things you want to pray for them is that they would know God's will. And thankfully, just wanted to make the point that we know God's will by reading God's word. This is not some mysterious thing, right? What is God's will for my life? Well, it's to obey the Bible, right? Like to fall into this trap, like that you're praying for someone, that they're going to discern some mysterious will of God for their lives is actually to get close to the error that the Colossians were falling into, that there's some other knowledge other than the word, other than what they had heard from in Paphos, right? So... Pray that other believers would know what to do so that knowing what to do, they would walk in sanctification so that they would live holy lives and therefore produce fruit right, to the praise and glory of God. Right? And then I think at verse 4, right, he's still building on it. Maybe you remember last time that I talked about how this is one long sentence in Greek, kind of like Ephesians 1. Right? But in producing fruit, you say they're coming to know God. And if you have a translation of the Bible that doesn't break all this up in periods, you begin to see how linked it all is together. Right? He's just building on it. Boom, boom, boom. Another step, another step. All right? And that's different than verse 1, right? Knowing the will of God, knowing what to do, is different. It's connected, but it's different than knowing God. This is more about theological knowledge. Growing in your understanding of who God is is different than growing in your understanding of what to do, right? Our shorter catechism says, what do the scriptures principally teach? The scriptures principally teach, and it only lists two things. What man is to believe, number four, concerning God, and the second thing, what duty God requires of man, knowing what to do. Look how biblical the shorter catechism is. Right? Okay. And then the fifth thing, strengthen. Right? Strengthen with all might. Because as you grow in knowledge of God, you're desiring to live this way, you're going to need strength. Right? And we can just choose that first word. Strength. Spiritual strength. And you see how he roots it in the strength of God. Strength with all might. Strengthened with all might. According to to God's glorious power. And then the sixth thing, we can simply write the word perseverance. Perseverance. Maybe. Hope you that right. But, and maybe you could take that and, and kind of craft it in your own words. Come up with six words or phrases that helps you in your prayers because that is certainly one of the examples that Paul is giving us here is how to pray for our fellow believers. And at verse 12, Paul begins to return to giving thanks. He says it again. Remember back in verse 3, he was giving thanks. Here in verse 12, he begins to give thanks again. Giving thanks unto the Father. Right? Notice that, that point there. Right? He links it to the Father. Not the Son, not the Spirit, though they're all involved, but there's a special role that each person plays. We kind of got into that in verse 1 uh, two weeks ago, that he's an apostle of Jesus by the will of God, the Father, but he's an apostle of Jesus and all those things. Verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father. And here's another list. I didn't give you four points, but you can mark these in your Bible or make a note somehow. Of course, he gives you four more things here. Right, that we can thank God. He steps back into a uh, collective sense. Right? In verses 12 through 14, I'm going to read them now. Listen for plural words. Us, we, and things like that. He says, giving thanks unto the Father who has made us meet or uh, qualified 
to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Right? So that's four things that he's given thanks to God for, right? So showing you another element of prayer where we praise God in our prayers. Paul is doing this as well. He's praised specific things for them, those six things we looked at. And then he shifts back into doxology, praising the Lord. The first thing, again, is making us qualified. He thanks God that he has made us qualified to participate or partake of this inheritance of the saints in light. He also, again, says he thanks God for delivering us from the power of darkness, for translating us into the kingdom of his dear son and redeeming us through the blood of Christ. By the way, if you don't know what that is, he says the forgiveness of sins. All right, each of these are elements in our salvation. You must know that your receiving the Christian faith is because God has made you qualified to do so. Now, that does not mean that Christian faith is a matter of earning it and God qualifies you to earn it. It means that God qualifies you to receive this inheritance, right? Qualifying you to receive an inheritance. And you think of inheritance as, as often comes up in the, the Old Testament, how they pass uh, certain portions of the land from one generation to the next how the priesthood would pass on. It was a type of inheritance, how one would try to marry with another in order to participate in the inheritance. And you know um, how that uh, continues to work today in, in people's last will and testament, those kind of things. But God has qualified us, meaning before God did that or outside of the work of God, we're not qualified for this. The inheritance is not ours. But through God's working, it has been made ours. When you know you've been qualified by God, you can have perfect peace and rest, as the hymn says. You'll notice uh, that all of these uh, things that Paul thanks God for, uh, we are passive in them. We are passive. He, he has thanked God and praised God for their working, right? The saints and Colossae. You're living faithfully, you're loving one another. That's great and wonderful and good. But here he thanks God for the things that only God could do and that we are totally passive in receiving this. Maybe you're uh, familiar with a word like monergism as it relates to salvation. That means the working of one, mono, one, jism, uh, urgism kind of sort of, kind of sounds like our word energy. Right? One energy. Right? That's how our salvation happens. It's not God plus man. It's God. And these three verses are as powerful a point as any uh, to remind us of this. We are passive in all these things. We are qualified. We are delivered. We are translated. We are redeemed. All of those things happen to us. We are totally passive. And this is why... Um, I would argue that things like um, infant baptism are one of the greatest pictures of the gospel of anything that we see in the church. That child does nothing but receive, not very happily all the time, but they're just a subject to the working of another. And that's a picture we need to have for our own salvation. We don't outgrow that. Now this phrase, uh, the saints in light, it's a kind of a peculiar phrase. I gave you a quote there. Um, should be, I guess it would be the next one after your list of six. It says, The apostle seems to allude to the land of Canaan. Right, so referring to the Old Testament, wherein a portion was assigned to everyone by lot for his inheritance, that being a type of the rest which remaineth to the people of God, Hebrews 4, 9. And this is here said to be of the saints in light, 
as allegorically connoting the joy and glory of that state and place in opposition to the power of darkness. And it plays on this idea, like the kingdoms that are mentioned here, that we're brought from <clears throat> the power of darkness into uh, the inheritance of the saints in light, right? Notice that contrast there, darkness and light. Um, but there's also the contrast of the kingdom of God's son versus, obviously, the kingdom of the devil. And that, that promised land uh, that promised land idea uh, is um, lifted up to heaven, as it were, and shown that, as we know in the book of Hebrews, that the saints knew, and in Romans 4 speaks of, that the saints of old were not ultimately, the ones who understood, were not ultimately looking simply to receive a piece of land. They were looking to a heavenly inheritance. And Paul is connecting that here, that our inheritance is with the saints in light. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And that we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness, where that was our inheritance, to this new kingdom, this heavenly kingdom, where our inheritance is to be said of the saints in light. And he says it's, it's an allegorical connection, meaning it's an image based on a previous thing that these would have understood, but that pointed to an ultimate and greater reality, the joy and glory, not of a piece of land, but of a heavenly land. On being delivered from this power of darkness and being translated into the kingdom of God's dear son, this is your next quote, uh, this is from a man uh, whose last name is uh, Musculus. Sounds like a, um, a sea creature. Um, but he was one of the earlier reformers. Um, and he says, Therefore, since God was willing to make us fit for this destiny, right, to make us qualified for this destiny and inheritance of the saints, it was utterly necessary that he first liberate us from Satan's dominion, from darkness, from sin, and from condemnation, and besides that, death. Right? So he's saying all this is in the background. We're talking about God qualifying us and God translating us. We haven't been uh, qualified from a state of neutrality into a state of being qualified. We haven't been delivered from no kingdom into a kingdom. We've been delivered and qualified from a kingdom of darkness and lack of qualification to a place of being qualified into a kingdom of light. Right? He's drawing a contrast. He says, Is it not a sufficient kindness that we have been rescued from the dominion of darkness? Meaning, wouldn't it just be enough? to just be delivered from a dominion of darkness? It is utterly incomparable, he says. How greatly then should he accumulate, meaning it is right for him to continue in praise, this further praise because he, God, has transferred us into the kingdom of his own son. So like, think of it as like uh, three places. Right? I'm arguing the, the middle place doesn't exist. Right, so uh, got one, two, three. This is dark. This is light. And let's call this nothing. Right, or neutral. Right, he's saying that we have been delivered from here and brought here. Right? We haven't been, uh, we weren't naturally here and then brought here. We weren't naturally here and then, oh, uh, let's see which one we're going to be. We're going to be here. No, we were here in the kingdom of darkness. This one doesn't even really exist because there's no such thing. And we've been delivered. We've been translated. We've been qualified all the way over into that other kingdom. And then on redemption through the blood of Christ, and then if you have any uh, comments or questions, that will be the time for it. But 
This last quote is there on your handout as well, I think. This is from John Gill, speaking about redemption through the blood of Christ. He says, this is the blood of Christ, verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood. His own blood, not the blood of bulls and goats, and the same with that of the persons he redeems. Right, So not even our own blood, but untainted with sin. The blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and blemish, of original or actual sin, meaning it didn't have either of those. Otherwise, if it did, it would not have been a sufficient redemption price for his people. Nor even then were it not as it was the blood of the Son of God, of one that was God as well as man, whereby it came to have a proper value and efficacy in it to obtain this blessing. Christ shedding his blood freely on this account is a proof of his great love to his redeemed ones. The efficacy that was in it to answer this purpose shows the dignity and greatness of his person. And it not being to be effected without it, meaning we couldn't receive anything without it, demonstrates the strictness of divine justice. And that the redemption of men is brought about in a way entirely consistent with the righteousness and holiness of God. Right? Because, you know, Paul could have just said, in whom we have redemption, even the forgiveness of sins. But he says, in whom we have redemption, through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. And Gil is drawing attention to the fact that Paul is pointing to his blood as this theological purpose that you must see in salvation, that Christ's blood was perfect. And as we know, the book of Hebrews says, and the whole temple cultus teaches us, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And here Jesus' blood is not shed yearly. It's not shed monthly or weekly. It's shed once for all. That shows the sufficiency, the perfection of his blood. It was untainted with sin, but it came as one who, from one who was without spot or blemish. And this shows the justice of God, that none of the animals before had actually, ultimately taken away sin. There had to be another provision. There had to be a greater sacrifice, and it could only be fulfilled by one a common man could not do it. And this shows the great love of God, knowing the purpose or knowing the, the great need that we have of this type of salvation, that he takes it on himself and does it. Christ assumes to himself a human nature, a fully human person without original or actual sin and dies the death of divine justice so that this redemption is brought about again in a way entirely consistent with the righteousness and holiness of God. What Paul is doing is tying this beautiful story of the gospel, the work of redemption through Christ together. He's painting this picture to show them there's nothing better. You cannot move beyond Christ because even in trying to do so, you move below him. You move away from him. There is no greater salvation that can be had. And he uses that again to, to kind of tie knots in their errors, and he does it in, in different ways. Um, it's interesting, though, that he starts with just the basics of what Christ has done for us as the first attack that he lodges against their error. Right? You've departed even from the basics of the gospel when you began to believe the things that they were believing. All right, so comments, questions. We can go all the way back. We can talk about prayer, um, anything like that, the list, the quotes, whatever. Hmm. 
scripture and not seek for special knowledge outside of what God has revealed. Right. And there's that temptation in our hearts that you know, we'll confess that we have that God is sufficient, His word is sufficient, we'll confess sufficiency, but we have dissatisfaction. Hmm. That the connection between those two and seeing that in our own hearts that if I'm not satisfied with, <coughs> with what God has given, then I'm misunderstanding its sufficiency. Mm. Yeah, it's so many, um, not just the error of the Colossians, um, but so many, we could probably say every error uh, that creeps up into Christianity and leads us away from Christ is a rejection of the sufficiency of Scripture. Um, the verse that always comes to mind is Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we might do all the words of his law. Right? So all the things that are revealed. Knowing what to do. Lead us to a life of sanctification, producing fruit, and all of that stuff. If you've ever noticed this, maybe you've lived in a phase like this of, of your own life uh, where... Um, you're talking to someone or you're, somebody's trying to talk to you and they're just pointing you back or you're pointing them back to just the simple teachings of Scripture. And the comeback is always something like this. Yeah, I know what the Bible says, but... Right? I know what God requires of me here, but... I know what I should believe about this, but... Right? Those revealed things, I know, I know them, but... That is the, the um, hissing tongue of the serpent. Right? And it leads us, it leads other people, it led the Colossians to all kinds of errors because they weren't denying that Jesus had done great things. They were just saying, but there's more. Right? And Paul's like, there's not. There's not. We've got plenty to learn here in the Scriptures. I can't help appreciate you bringing this out. It's a very important lesson to me. And uh, a couple points. One of them is the putting into the framework of what he does, which is laid out in the last three verses. Yeah. What, what we're to do, it, it totally cuts at the heart of self-sufficiency, you know, and it really puts us in the framework in two ways. It puts us in the framework in two ways of being in the body of Christ. One mm-hmm. is the participation in his grace mm. changing our life mm-hmm. okay, as he is doing the work. And the second is, I think you pointed out very well those words, us, 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 that, you know, that, that we are not, the necessity to be in a Christian community, mm. okay, that, that that grace happens in us in the context, me. happens to each of us in the context of being in a Christian community, of us being, I mean, it's just, about as deep a theological. I mean, this is really good. Mm-hmm. I, I got a lot out of this. I appreciate it. Yeah. Second question: is, is this? I'm not familiar with this Reformation series. Is this a series? Is it fully developed? I'm, I'm yeah, um, I don't know that, a little bit about that. Yeah, I don't know that they've done every um, book of the Bible, but uh, I've got some in my office. I can show you in just a minute. But it's a a series that they all they did is compile quotes from. Uh, writers from the Reformation, I mean, they're all over the map. Like, you'll have a quote from, like, an Anabaptist, then you'll have a quote from a Lutheran, then you'll have a quote from someone who was more Reformed in their leanings and stuff like that. Uh, but it's a, just a series that um, I, uh, IVP, International Varsity, Inter Varsity Press, did. Yeah, I'm just surprised that Inter-Varsity Press and Sometimes those two don't go together. Right, yeah. I'm surprised. Well, you know, when everything remains academic, they can handle it. Okay. Okay. (laughs) When it's just a matter of history, it's okay. (laughs) Yeah. Back on the other side of your foot, right there, you know, there's a whole lot that happens that's obviously, it says it here, and we know this, that happens from point that God does in moving from dark, moving us from dark to light, 
-hmm. And it ties into that statement, last one. Therefore, since God was willing mm. to make us fit for his destiny inheritance. So God, so so the all the things that happened before that point is God mm -hmm. doing that. Yeah. And you know, I, I just I just bring that up because my Baptist friends, I don't know how many times they bring out that you're, you're well, you, you love God, but you're a Calvinist, you know, type of thing. I said, well, you know, what is it? I mean, simplistically, with the Baptist theology or mentality that hurls that insult out, that, I mean, yeah, we all understand. I, they understand. I understand that, yeah, we were dark and now we're light. But, but God does that. But we were so utterly in darkness that it wasn't our choosing. I don't think the Baptist theology mm -hmm. understanding picks it up enough or makes it clear to people. Because I, don't, I think there's still, there's arrogance or there's a prideful thing that said, I did it on my own. I, you, you notice that? I mean, you notice that? This happens in my, a lot of Baptist friends, you know, yeah. say this. No, I mean, it's, it's not just, just them. I, I think overall it's just an unfamiliarity with Scripture. Um, it's bread, though. It, it's, it, it's it is. Bread in, it's, in that theology, yeah. and, it, and, and, and I have to say, well, so, so, so you were good enough to get yourself enlightened enough to understand it. I mean, in other words, that's the only combat. I mean, so, you know, good is good. Yeah. You know. yeah, I mean, it's just like you find yourself in conversations with these people. You can literally quote scripture to them. Yeah. Don't do this as an exercise, all right? Yeah. Use a phrase from scripture, but don't tell them it's from scripture. Yeah. And see how they respond. And then you can show it to them in the Bible, right? And then that, that can really make good. people think. But it's just they have these prepackaged notions of what Christianity is, of what good is, what is right, and what salvation is, right? I mean, I, I, I grew up with people, and they, they still think they're Christians and haven't been to church in years because they were baptized when they were 12 years old. Right? It's just like, what? Right. Yeah. What I was going to add, too, was... <clears throat> Tying both together, but going back to that other list, if you go back, I think it was that fourth point you had was knowing God. Mm -hmm. If you know God, and as you begin to understand that, then the set, the one you just gave him, there is no gray in God. Right. There isn't. Mm -hmm. So therefore, as you pointed out, we're either in sin, and as a consequence of that, we deserve death deserve his full wrath and judgment or we are righteous. There is no gray area. Mm -hmm. Humanism has done, has introduced to us how many times in our own vocabulary when we use the term less gray area. There is no gray area. Not with this. Yeah. Not with this. Right. But yet again, going back to Kind of what Tom said, somehow or another that, that, that still creeps into the process. But, and, and I don't want to sound redundant, but as I continue in 40 something years, you know, I'm still trying to, and I know I will never fully understand. I understand I'm still trying to get my head around, around Christ, but goodness, when I try to begin to, Ligonier Series was doing one this week, uh, but also known the attributes of God. Hmm. I, I'm blown away whenever I try to just touch on any of those things in the process. But that, know, and that's where part of the problem yeah. comes back in. Still wanting to define, in my weak point, wanting to define God still somewhat on man's terms in there mm -hmm. as opposed to. Yeah. yeah. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Don't you think if we were sincere, really sincere, in praying this? each other and for our family that we'd see lives changed mm -hmm. bless ourselves yeah, amen. I mean I was thinking about that this morning as I was getting ready just how powerful those points are about prayer right and 
you know, when we start praying, especially when, you know, we're praying just us and the Lord and our, our prayer closet or something, nobody's listening but him. Um, we, you know, kind of all over the place and whatnot. And, you know, there's, there's goodness in that freedom. Um, it still takes the interact, but it still takes the interaction of us. I, I mean, I know God doesn't need me. No, he doesn't. But on the average, everyday level, it does use me or any, yeah. anybody, a right. person, yeah. to talk to somebody else, mm -hmm. to interact with a somebody else, mm -hmm. and and calling a a spade a spade, so to speak, about something that they see in that person's life, something that could benefit that person, mm -hmm. sure. other than just, hey, you need to just feel good. Yeah. You know, just feel, you know, I, I think I might know, I think I do know a solution to your problem. Yeah. We're willing to. Right. But when we, like when we pray for those people, or when we pray for our families and whatnot, like, I mean, we, we don't have, there's not a, a better list, right? So many of our, our children, our family members are still on verse one, right? Point number one, they, they don't know what to do, right? Maybe they don't know God, right? We need to pray for that too. But simply knowing how to live and pursuing a life of sanctification, like I, when I pray as, as like there's a, I kind of have modes of prayer, where I'm, I'm, I'm praying as, as a dad, praying as a husband, and then I'm praying as a pastor. Like when I, when I pray as a pastor and I, I think about the needs of the congregation and, and the people, like it, there's like a, a pull I can feel in my thinking and in the flesh to kind of pray what maybe a worldly sense of prayer for them, right? That they would just be, you know, especially when I'm praying for people who are struggling, right? just that they would find some kind of inner peace, right? That they would just be happy again and return to X, Y, and Z. But like, if I think about praying for the congregation like this, that just radically transforms things, right? Just that, that Mr. Ed would know what to do, that Mr. Tom would live a life of holiness, that Miss Lois would produce fruit according to knowing God. Mr. Hugh, who's almost as old as God. <laughs> Praying for the strength to live as a Christian and persevere in those things, right? That, that just transforms the way we pray and think about one another. And it kind of makes all those other issues fade into the background. But let me close in prayer, and then we can shift towards worship.